Hi everyone, this is Pastor Brett from First Baptist Church here in Cherryvale, Kansas, and I want to welcome you to our Cherryvale First Baptist Church sermon podcast. Our prayer is that the Lord will speak to you through His Word for His people. If you're looking for a church home, we encourage you to join us for our celebration service every Sunday morning at 1045. It's a great time of praising our Lord and hearing from Him. We are just a group of passionate followers of Jesus Christ with a desire to worship Him and take His message of hope to the heartland. If you want to find out more information about our church, you can look at our website, www.fbcherryvale.org. My sermon will begin in just a moment, and thanks again for listening. I invite you to find your Bibles this morning and turn to the book of 1 Timothy chapter 3. As you're turning there, some say the greatest goal for them as a parent is to make their children happy. So, if that's the case, what would be the best strategy to make your children happy? It would be to what? Create these environments in the home which just cultivate happiness in your child. If candy makes them happy, well, you just give them all the candy they want. If doing their schoolwork, if that's what makes them happy, well, break out your number two pencil, sharpen it up, and get to work. But as parents, we must surrender the idea that our purpose is simply to make our children happy. Sure, there will be moments of happiness, and that would just be the product of good parenting. But it's definitely not the end goal of what we're trying to achieve. Still, there's others. They might conclude that having compliant children, children who listen and children who obey, that's the goal of parenting. But the purpose of disciplining your children, it isn't to make them compliant. It's to move them toward Christ-likeness in their life. So, since you can't change your child's heart, the best way to do that is to create Christ-like behavior in your child. And the best way to do that is to model it. To model it by the way that you live your life. To model Christ-like behavior for your children. Look, God has given you, he's given the parent the assignment of representing him during those formative years of childhood. Let's look at our text for this morning. Please stand in honor of reading God's word. We're in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, as we come to you, we just pray, Lord, that we'll be parents that you call us to be, that we'll be able to lead our children effectively, to discipline them, to disciple them, to do all the things that we can do to help them grow up to be Christ-like children, because that's really the goal, and that's what we're going to talk about today, is how we can help our children be more Christ-like through how we lead them, how we train them, and how we bring them up. So God, give us a heart to listen, give us ears to hear. Help us understand what we need to learn today to be the parents that you call us to be. It's in your name we pray. And all God's children said, amen. You may be seated. Let me begin by saying this. As Jesus, as he addressed his disciples, it was in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, where he gave them the marching orders that they would have, where he said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, those marching orders, they weren't only for those disciples back then. You see, they're also marching orders for us today. There's some here, you've taken that great commission that Jesus gave, and you've taken it to heart. There's some here that you've been doing all that you can to bring that message of God's salvation to the people, bringing them to the foot of the cross. Yet, at the same time, We can sometimes get so involved in working for the salvation of others that we forget and we neglect the salvation of those that are closest to us, our children. 
Church, our work for Christ, it must begin with the family. It must begin in the home. For there's no missionary field that is more important than your very household that you live in. The work of pastors, teachers, evangelists, and missionaries, that's extremely important work. And it has yielded some marvelous results as well. But the work that each one of us gets to do in our homes, it is crucial to the salvation of our children. Look, we've all been sent out into the world, Jesus says, to do what? To make disciples. Yet, here's what so many people forget, that our children, they also need to be disciples of Jesus. And it's we, their parents, we are to be the disciple makers for them. Just back in Moses' day, God taught the Israelites about the crucial role that parents play in the household, in the life, in the discipleship, and the discipline of their children. And through Moses, God instructed his people. Look what he said. This is on the way to the promised land. It's in Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 9. This is how God instructed them. He said, And these words I have commanded you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Then in the New Testament, it was the Apostle Paul. He was addressing the pastor Timothy about the role of parenting for those who are in leadership within the church. He said this in 1 Timothy 3, 4 and 5. He said, he must engage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? It was in the Old Testament. We read a story about Eli the priest. He was disqualified from leadership because he didn't restrain his children from doing wrong. We see this in 1 Samuel 3, 13. It says, and I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. So what we need to do is this. We need to ask ourselves, what kind of parent am I? Am I one who is permissive? One who allows my child to do anything, to say anything, to go anywhere that they want without any kind of restraint, without any kind of guidance or restrictions? Or... Am I the type of parent who, with God's help and with his wisdom, I guide and I lead my children to be obedient to me, the parent, as well as to be followers of Jesus Christ? Are you going to be a parent, one who disciplines your children and disciples them, or are you going to be like one of these parents? Because there are some parents that are what we call lifeguard parents. Lifeguard parents, you probably know who they are. They're the ones that always want to rescue their child from all the consequences of their actions. I mean, we'd all agree that none of us, I don't think there's any parent I've ever met who wants to see their child suffer, even if it's a result of their own choices, their own decisions, or their own actions. And yet, letting them experience the failure that may come from their actions, letting them experience those consequences of their decisions, well, it may just be the best lesson, the lesson that they need that will help them for the rest of their lives. One of the things that we need to teach and remind our children of regularly is what Paul said in Galatians 6, 7. He said, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Now there's other parents that are what we might call ocean wave parents. They're the ones that are kind of coming and going. They're kind of blowing with the wind. They're inconsistent. As we kind of discussed this a little bit last week, our children, they need consistency and they need security in a healthy home. If you tell them that they can't do something this week, but then here comes next week, and next week, well, everything's okay, and you allow it to happen, they won't know what to expect from you from week to week, even from day to day. 
There's two verses in the book of Proverbs that remind us of the importance of fair guidance and correction. The correction that our children crave from us, their parents. The first is Proverbs 29.15. It says, The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. The second is Proverbs 29.17. It says, Discipline your son and he will give you rest. He will give delight to your heart. Your children, they need correction, discipline, and guidance from you, the parents, if you want them to be disciplined, if you want them to become disciples of Jesus Christ. By the way, correction and discipline, and I think we talked a little bit about this last week as well, they must never become punishment or abuse. We never do it in anger. In fact, the word discipline, if you look it up, it comes from the root word, the same root word as disciple. So know that the goal of discipline, what we're trying to do when we discipline our children, it's not to break your child's will. You're not trying to break them down. It's not about forcing them to submit to what it is you want them to do, but rather the goal of discipline in their lives is to guide them to become disciples. Parental discipline and discipleship in Christ. Understand, they go hand in hand. And just how did Jesus lead his disciples? I mean, you could read the scriptures and and you'd pick it out. He led them gently, wisely, patiently, not angrily, not impatiently, and not abusively. Keep in mind, this discipline is not something you do to your children. It's something you do for your children. The author of Proverbs, he writes this in Proverbs 19.18. Discipline your son, for there is hope. Do not set your heart on putting him to death. Discipline, loving discipline, it's one of the best things that you can do for your children. Or as motivational speaker Zig Ziglar once put it, he said this, he said the child who has not been disciplined with love by his little world, which means his family, where he lives, he says he will be disciplined generally without love by the great big world, which is the world outside. The third type of parent is what we would call the railroad track parents. Now, these parents, okay, yes, they got the same goals, they have the same desires in mind, but what happens is they work separately without consulting each other about the best way to lead, to guide, to teach, and to discipline their children. They're kind of like these railroad tracks, they're leading these parallel lives, going down the tracks, and they're going in the same direction, but the thing is they're not working together in unity as they try to discipline and disciple their children. Of these types of parents, it was the prophet Amos in Amos 3.3 that asked this question of them. He said, do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? Parents, for the sake of your children, walk worthy and lead boldly. In our remaining time together, we're going to look at what we're supposed to do. What we must do if we want to effectively discipline our children and disciple them, make them disciples of Christ along the way. We're going to look at our roadmap, our roadmap to discipline children. And the first thing we need to look at is it's centered around disciple-making. I think we all know the best example we have of disciple-making in the Scriptures is found in the New Testament. And it's found in Jesus himself, right? As Jesus, as he began his messianic ministry, he surrounded himself with a group of men. And these men, he would take them and he would train them to be his disciples. And as Jesus preached his first public message, the first sermon he delivered, there was a multitude that was gathered around on the slope of a hill overlooking the Sea of Galilee. But there with him also were these men. It was there that Jesus, he began to set the stage for his instructions. The instructions for those who wished to follow him. Now in most cultures, when a teacher, when they want to deliver instructions to someone, they don't stand up, do they? What do we do in our society? It's like me, a teacher or a preacher or a pastor or a lecturer. We're standing up and we're kind of lecturing to the crowd. But is that how they did it back in Jesus' day? No, what would they do? 
Jesus, he went out, he went and he found a hill and he sat down and all of his listeners, they would come and they would all sit at the foot of the master and they would listen to him and they would talk and they would have a very personal dialogue back and forth about the message. The Jewish teachers would sit, they would expound on the scriptures, the disciples would come and they'd sit next to their feet. Many consider Jesus' Sermon on the Mount as Jesus' manual for the beginner or for the rookie disciple. Think of it this way. The time had come for the disciples who were, had been most closely associated with Christ to unite more directly within his work. That these vast throngs, those that were around them, that they needed to be cared for as sheep without a shepherd. A great work was yet to come to be accomplished by these disciples. Before they were ready to go out, they had to be prepared for the sacred trust that would be theirs. When Jesus when he would finally ascend up into heaven, he took these 12 men and he saw in them those that he could train those he could discipline, those that he could work with for his great work. What I want to do is look at Jesus' methods, some of the methods that he used to train these men because they reveal several important aspects that can help us as parents as we work with our children. First of all, Jesus, what did he do? He gathered his disciples around him. Jesus used a small, intimate group most of the time. Yeah, we read in the scripture, we read times where there are several large gatherings. Some as large as 5,000 people where Jesus got there and he was ministering to them. But his work as a disciple maker was largely done in a small group with those 12 men that he chose. Look at Matthew 10.1. He said, and he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. That's why, parents, it's the home. It's with our family. It's surrounded by our children. That's when our work as a disciple maker is most effective. Second method Jesus used was this. Jesus spent time with them. For three and a half years, Jesus and his disciples, they traveled, they ate, they slept, they worked, and they rested together. Now, there were times when Jesus would send them out. He sent them out on missionary journeys like in Matthew 10, 5. He says there, these 12 Jesus sent out instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans. Or there was other times Jesus said, hey, I need you to go do this for me. He sent them out on errands like in Matthew 21, 2. He said, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. But you see, other than those times when he sent them out, had them doing things, they were with Jesus. They were right there with him constantly. And this time together, understand, it was no coincidence, but rather it was very much part of Jesus' training program for his disciples. Disciple-making parents, understand, they will spend quality time and quantity time with their children. One cannot be a good disciple maker unless one is willing to invest time in their disciples. The third method that Jesus used was this. Jesus taught and trained them. Jesus' teaching and training, it was done at times privately. Like in Matthew 13, when his disciples, when they would come to his house, and they came to where Jesus was saying, and they started asking him questions. They said, Jesus, will you explain to us here this parable of the tares of the field? Or this time in Matthew 17 when they couldn't cast out a demon from a little boy who was suffering from an epileptic seizure. Then we also see there's times in Matthew 5 and 13 and Matthew 15 as well. There's times where Jesus, he was teaching and training the disciples. And it was done in really a larger setting, more people around. And then there was times when Jesus had to even teach them by settling some of the disputes that his disciples had back and forth. Questioning that was happening among his disciples. Like in Luke 22, 24. It said, a dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Now, we, 
as the disciple-making parents, we must keep in mind that we're always teaching our children, always, our daily interactions with other people, how we spend our time, how we spend our money, what we do, what we say, everything that we do is teaching our children something, whether it's right or wrong. Our children, if you haven't figured it out, they're always watching us, they're always listening to us, and they're always learning from us. The fourth thing that Jesus did was Jesus paired them with a mentor. In Luke 10, 1, where Jesus, he got 72 other disciples together and he sent them out on their first missionary journey. Look at that. It said, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. Now understand, Jesus, he didn't just say, okay, well, just, just divide yourselves into groups of two and just go. No, he didn't haphazardly just match these people together. But what did he do? He carefully selected the pairings of how they were going to go out to benefit the younger, less mature ones in the group. Typically, what he would do is he would take an older, more mature, experienced man, and he would pair that with a younger man. And while they didn't live together like a rabbi and his disciples might, they often would meet together and they would pray together and they would counsel with each other. And as a result of doing this over a long time, both of them, they were strengthened by their faith. We see how Jesus, how he practiced this mentoring thing among his own disciples. Remember who he paired with Peter? Peter's temperament was what? It was impulsive and it was zealous. So who did he pair Peter with? John, right? John was what? The beloved disciple. He was a milder character than Peter was. And the result was that the shortcomings of the one, they partially if not fully covered the weaknesses of the other by their strengths and the virtues that they had. As disciple-making parents, understand we can pair our children of different temperaments for the benefit of both. Fifth practice of Jesus was this. He sent them to work for others. For Jesus, disciples were really the co-laborers with him. So while other aspects of disciple-making, they, they are important, his commission to his disciples was to what? Look at it again, Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Said, and Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. As Jesus, as he was training these men, he was training them for the individual labor that would come, which would be to multiply in numbers and reach to those far corners of the earth. It was crucial for them to learn that they held in trust for the world the glad tidings of salvation. Disciple-making parents, they're preparing their children, preparing them for the future ministry that they will have, regardless of what career path they might choose. There's one final step that Jesus took in his disciples in training them, and it was this. He left them with the assurance that they would not be alone. Jesus promised a helper. He promised the Holy Spirit. He said he would be with them. It says in Luke 12, 12, Jesus said, For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. And then it was in John 14, 26, Jesus said this, But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all the things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And then it was in Acts 1.8 where he said, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. He sent the Holy Spirit so that they would continue to grow spiritually and to mature in their faith, and they would grow in numbers. 
Jesus prepared his disciples for the reception of the Holy Spirit. And he did that by leading them to feel their need of him. And it was in the understanding of the Spirit's teaching that they received their final qualification for the ministry that they had and for the life work that Jesus had put out for him. Disciple-making parents, what you need to do is prepare your children for the time when they are going to be out there in the world all on their own. For the time when their parents, they may rest in death and they'll be without you. Disciple-making parents, they will assure that their children, that they will never be alone, but that the Holy Spirit will always be there, will be their constant comfort no matter what. The result of Jesus' training of his disciples were that they were what? They weren't the same, right? They were uneducated, uncultured men. Those were the people that he first called, but they'd been changed, right? They'd been changed to reflect Jesus in mind and character. And the result of this, it was so noticeable by the people, they noticed this drastic change. Look what it said about them in Acts 4.13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. That's the ultimate goal of discipleship right there. That the disciple may be like him, like Jesus. The role of disciple-making parents is to nurture your children by loving them and relating closely with them and helping them love others just as Jesus said. It was in John 13, 35. He said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. He didn't say if you invite them over to play with your toys. If you go outside and ride bikes with them, he said, if you love one another, if you do that, they will grow up to be mature, healthy disciples. Parenting small children, understand it isn't about teaching them all of these rules and regulations. Paul, he refers to the role of a parent in the spiritual growth of a child. And he challenges us with this in Ephesians 6, 4, to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, the Greek word for instruction in this text here is padeia. And what it means is this. It means training, learning, instruction. It's the same word that's used in Hebrews 12, 5, which says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. It's used in a spiritual sense when it's translated as discipline or chastening. Therefore, what the author of Hebrew, what he's urging parents here to do is to nurture and disciple their children and to use God's word to do that, to use the Bible, which is born out of the parents' love, the love that they have for God. It's described in Deuteronomy 6.5. It says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And by the way, I hope you understand this, your marriage... Your marriage, it also provides an opportunity for discipleship, even one who is married to an unbeliever. I'm going to read this just so you can understand the context of what I'm trying to get at here. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 12 through 14. It says, To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Then I want to jump down to 1 Corinthians 7, 16 here. Look at Paul's charge down here. He says, For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Here, what Paul is doing is he's counseling church members here in Corinthians, those whose spouses weren't a believer. And he was counseling them to do what? 
to remain married together if they so consent. Because it provides that church member with an opportunity to witness to their spouse. And hopefully the goal of that is to help their spouse become sanctified in Christ. As parents, we must together discipline and disciple our children. It's not an either or. Both discipline and discipleship are required. What I want to do is I want to close this morning looking at what might be considered the cost of discipleship. And we're going to look at the dust of discipleship. Now you may be thinking, well, that's kind of an odd thing to be saying here, the dust of discipleship. What does it mean? Because I really love this phrase, and, and I don't know if you've ever heard it or not, but it, the real phrase is, in the dust of the rabbi. Have you ever heard that, anyone? Good. It's so foreign to us in the 21st century, but it's so important for us to understand today. The implications of this statement, understand, for disciplining and for discipling our children, the implications are very powerful because it's in the dust of the rabbi. That's where you want to be. It's in the dust of the rabbi. That's where you want your children to be. And when you see where that is, if you haven't already figured that out, if you haven't already gone there yourself in your life, you'll want to get there. Get there as soon as you can. And you'll want your children to join you and get there as soon as they can. So... What does it mean in the dust of the rabbi? Well, to help us understand this, what we're going to do is we're going to go all the way back to first century Israel. Jesus came to do something very special in God's grand plan. And what was it? What was his primary purpose? To what? He came to what? He came to seek and save people. Seek and save the lost. His goal was to save people from their sins. That's what he came to do. And while he was here on earth, he undertook a public preaching, a teaching, and a healing ministry. The purpose of this ministry was to show us how to live a righteous and godly way of life. And do that in a proper relationship with God. It was his life and his message and his ministry that led to that point of his saving act of Jesus' crucifixion, his death on the cross. Jesus had many important things to say and do and teach. So important, in fact, that he called those 12 disciples to come after him so that they could witness it all, so that they could be with him and he could impart his wisdom upon them, his way of living, living out his faith in this world. And as we saw in the Great Commission, he specifically charged them with the leadership of taking the message out into the whole world. He called the disciples after him, just like a religious rabbi and the sages back in his day would do the same. You see, a rabbi and a sage back in Jesus' day, he would take disciples, they would come on after him, and their main job would be to follow the rabbi around. They'd follow him everywhere that he went. And it wasn't simply just to follow him. It was to be with him, to be with him everywhere that he went. It was to learn everything that he had to teach. It was to watch and to learn his lifestyle, how he practiced his religion. It was to ask him questions. It was to get answers from him. It was to be a first-hand, on-the-job experience and training program. The disciples of the rabbi, they memorized the rabbi's words. They literally wanted to become the rabbi, as much like that rabbi as humanly possible, gaining all of his knowledge, all of his wisdom, adopting for themselves how he practiced his religion. They wanted to eat like him. They wanted to recite scripture like him. They wanted to pray like him. They wanted to teach like him, serve others like him, help like him. And you get the point. They left everything behind. They gave up their lives to be their disciples for life. It was a 24-7, 365 job. No vacations, no time off, no breaks. That's why the potential disciple would have to count the cost of discipleship to a famous rabbi before embarking out and following him. It was not a fad. It's not a passing interest. And it was not a simple curiosity. 
Look how Jesus, this is how he stated this concept to his disciples. It's in Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 57. It says, and they were going along the road. Someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one puts his hand to the plow and looks back and is fit for the kingdom of God. Following a wandering teacher wouldn't always be easy. Often the sleeping arrangements for the night were uncertain. The next meal where that would come from, it would be uncertain. If they were married, a potential disciple would need to get his wife's permission to leave. And sometimes for a set period of time while they were off following this first century rabbi. Others would need to sell. Sell some. Maybe even sell all. Everything that they have. All of their possessions. They had to do that in order to become detached from them. So that they could focus and follow the rabbi. It was a 100% life commitment for a set period of time. It was serious business for these men. And for those men, it was also a complete honor to do. So the phrase, in the dust of the rabbi, it refers to disciple following closely in the footsteps of that rabbi. So much so that the disciple would actually be walking in the dust that the rabbi's feet kicked up as he was walking down the road. It symbolizes the teacher-disciple relationship, which would often even become closer than that disciple's own relationship with his own father. It symbolizes the adherence of the disciple to the teacher. It symbolizes the disciple's deep yearning, desire, passion, and willingness to learn everything that the rabbi had to teach. It symbolizes where God wants us to be today, where he wants our children to be today. Jesus, understand, he still calls us. He calls us to follow him, to follow his teachings. He still calls us to do what? To give up everything. Give it all up. Anything that gets in the way of our relationship with him, we are to get rid of it so that we can have the true discipleship walk with him. He still calls us today to count the cost of discipleship to him before we embark on this relationship with him. He still calls us to watch his life to learn everything that he has to teach us. And this is where scripture comes in. He still calls us to be with him, to learn how he practiced his religion, to memorize his words, to become as much like him as humanly possible, to gain all of his knowledge, to adopt his religious practices, and to recite scripture like him, to pray like him, and to teach like him, to serve others like him, to help like him, to put him before anything or any relationship we may have, to make and to keep a total life commitment to discipleship to him, for the rest of our lives. Jesus still expects us to become and to live as his disciples. We can still today walk in the dust of the rabbi. In fact, that's right where he wants us to be. That's right where, if we're Christians, he expects us to be. And when we're there, the dust that covers us, it will be a relationship with him. A relationship that's closer than that to our earthly father. The total commitment of these disciples to his father the deep yearning, desire, passion, and willingness to learn everything he has to teach and to strive to put that into practice. That's what he wants from us. The only thing left for you to do right now is strap on your sandals, strap them on, and come follow in the dust of the rabbi.
when we follow Jesus and his disciples in that dust of the rabbi, something miraculous takes place. Our children, they walk in our dust, which is nothing less than what? An extension of the rabbi's dust. When we walk in the dust of Jesus, you see, our children, they will also be able to walk in the dust of the rabbi, Jesus, by watching how we walk. That's how we as parents, that's how we are disciple makers. But more importantly, as we discipline and disciple our children, we make them into disciples of Christ. Let me just close with this. There's parents that need to be reminded that their children aren't perfect. They will never be, none of them. As much as you may relish telling your child, well, just how special they are or how uniquely one of a kind God has made them, your child, they still need to know that they are a sinner. There's a very selfish generation of young adults that are entering in the world today. They're feeling very entitled because they've lived a very safe, a very problem-free life under the supervision of parents who moved mountains to resolve the world around them. Parents, please hear this. Yes, our children, your children, they are very special. They are uniquely made and they are wonderfully gifted like no other. But they are also in the desperate need of Jesus. Without a proper understanding of their overwhelming need of a Savior, understand they won't develop a faith in Christ. They won't develop a desire to walk with Christ if struggle. If it is part of the process of your child growing in their faith and being made strong, then mom and dad, you must allow it. You must allow it. In fact, there's even times where you need to author the appropriate disappointments and circumstances in the lives of your children. Discipline will cause struggle and pain, but understand it's worth it as a parent. You're the filter. You're the one who determines the level of pain and the level of suffering your child experiences in these life circumstances. But also, you're the one who determines the discipline they receive in response to their sin. For some, all they choose to do is they want to shield their children. They want to block them off from any and all circumstances that may come. All of those difficulties, they want to block them out. Others, you leverage the pain. You leverage it for a greater purpose, and that's to help them know God. It's not an easy road, but understand, it's one worth treading. Your goal, understand, it must not be for your child's happiness. Your goal must be a Christ-like child. Be that parent. Let's pray. I want to thank you for listening to the message today. I pray that this message somehow has touched you and created within you a passion for action for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you have any questions or you need to make any decisions or you just need to talk to someone, I encourage you to contact your local pastor. And if you don't have one, if you don't have a local church, you may contact me through the church office at 620-336-2777. We'd love to see you on Sunday mornings in church for our celebration service. It's a great time of fellowship and worship of our Lord and Savior. Come join us. We know you'll be blessed and thanks again for listening to the Cherryville First Baptist Church Sermon Podcast and have a blessed day.